been um, sitting with this series about family, the nature of family that first week, the family that went on before us in that second week. Last week, we looked at parenting from the perspective of Jairus, this desperate parent in the Bible, and August came up here and to help me read the scripture, and I went back and I listened to the podcast, um, and if you ever want to, our sermons, if you, don't, if you aren't here one week, they're always on the podcast feed, and right whenever we said like, and all God's people said amen, you hear this like loud in my microphone, ah, from August, um, but today, as, as we approach Thanksgiving, um, I wanted to preach from the subject that is familiar to many of us, maybe unfamiliar to others. Um, some of us have fond memories of this and others of us might have complicated memories. Maybe they're nostalgic, maybe they're problematic, um, but I would like to preach from the subject, the family table, the family table. Will you pray with me this morning? Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. We thank you for your word. May it always be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. You are our strength and our redeemer. And all God's people said, amen. amen. Correct me if I'm, if I'm different than you in this feeling. It's okay. Maybe I'm on an island on this. Maybe you completely disagree. But I feel like Thanksgiving and Christmas used to be fun. Like, my memories of holidays seem to be a lot, you know, better than, than maybe my present reality. Like Thanksgiving was full of football and food. Christmas was full of presents and food. Um, we'd play in the backyard. We would get excited about new toys. We'd visit with relatives we haven't seen in a while. We'd eat cookies. We'd watch holiday movies like Charlie Brown. We, there'd be a class party. Like this is the season where like class parties are just the thing, right? If you're a parent of multiple children, how many class parties have you been to already? How many are you about to go to? I mean, you just know it is like time to eat and we get all these different treats and it's just like supposed to be so fun. And you got out of school, like you look forward to having like two weeks off, three weeks off out of school. You get Thanksgiving week off, you get Christmas off. Like it's just like all my memories of the holiday season are just like so fun. I don't know, I can't pinpoint the exact year this happened, but, but did any of you have a moment where like the flip switch, whoops, the switch flipped for you? And like all of a sudden, holidays weren't being like super fun to like stressful beyond belief. Like was it, can y'all identify like when that happened in your life. Am I alone in that? Am I the only one? It used to be fun. It's not not fun anymore. It's just less fun and way more stress. Anybody else? Can, am I alone? Island, amen. Thank, see, wait, you're still a kid. It's supposed to be fun for you. What are you doing? They're so stressful. So stressful. I, I hear you. Thank you for your, hey, I appreciate you being honest. If we're nothing as a community, we're honest, amen. I feel like I spend a lot more time stressing about this season than I do enjoying it. Like stressing about how to get to various places for each of the holiday gatherings. Like we gotta figure out this week specifically. Like here's a perfect example. Bree works on Wednesday and Friday. My family lives in Dothan. They can't leave Dothan. Her family lives in Montgomery. Her brother's flying in from Germany. We've gotta figure out how to get us in August to be able to see her family on, my family on Thursday day, then to Montgomery Friday night, but her work Friday, me preach Sunday. Anybody else got schedules like that, right? That is, that is what this season is. How do we get to North Carolina and to Baton Rouge? How do we get to wherever? I, don't, I mean, I, I'm thankful. At least my family is like a three-hour circle. But even still, it's like excruciating. And, and you know, I, another thing I remember, the decorating the tree used to be awesome whenever like dad was the one getting in the attic to get the tree out. All I had to do was like take an ornament and put it on the tree. Decorating the tree was amazing when we did that. Or here's, the, here's like the, the best one. Like 
I used to love hanging up lights. Before, when it was just my mom going through each strand to find the one bulb that doesn't work that causes the whole strand not to work anymore. Have they made better lights yet? Like, or is it still like, cause you remember, like, do y'all remember that? Like there's, if you had a whole strand of lights, like half of it wouldn't work. You couldn't figure out which, like you have that one bulb that would fix the whole strand. This used to be fun. And now it's like, I've got to get to this place. I've got to get to that place. I've got to get the presents for these people. I've got to see these. And you can't favor one family side of the family or the other, can you? Cause you hear about it, right? I mean, I love my in-laws. I love them. I do. I promise. <laughs> They were here last week. No, no buts, and, see, that's a, that's a kind way of not negating what you said before. Don't say but, say and. I love my in-laws, and I, I also realize that their schedules and mine are very different, right? So it's just, that, that is the, everybody's feeling that right now, right? You came into this morning feeling the holidays. It's like this mixture of like, yay, and oh my God, like, right? But there's one thing that has remained the same throughout all these things. Though my perception of holidays have changed, the one thing that has been constant is the family table. There's the, like, if nothing else happens at a holiday for me, we're gonna eat. And then we're gonna eat again. And then we're gonna eat some more. You know, as the weather has cooled off, I keep thinking, oh, I'm gonna ride my bike a few more times, get in a few more exercises. And I'm like, nah. It's all going to be negated because I'm about to eat a ton of food, right? Every party, every holiday gathering. And here's the thing, like Ecclesiastes, I'm just like, there's certain times you pull out certain parts of the Bible to affirm things you believe. Vanity of vanities. Working out is just vanity right now, right? It's not even, it's not going to be helpful because I'm about to eat so much food. He even says, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. I'm just living into that. I'm going to that family table expecting that life is going to be good as I consume whatever it is that will be there here at the church with my friends. And so, as I think about this family table, though I still eat, my perceptions have changed based on the experience. It's still the featured event, but one of the things I realized as an adult, it's not the smoothest event. Family gatherings used to be like fun, and, or eat food, and then you go have fun. But has anybody else like ever accidentally mentioned something political at a family table gathering? Like maybe not intentionally or maybe one of your, your family members like brought up something about politics. You're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. We're not gonna go there. Creates an awkward scenario, right? Or has um, anybody ever like married somebody in your family and they brought to a family gathering and like they don't quite fit in, get along. And there's like this tension. You don't feel that as a kid. But as an adult, you like, you see it all too well, right? It gets awkward at that family table pretty quick. Or like the, the classic example or the, the, the best example is like if you go to a family meal and everybody has, you know, there's some tension rising and somebody just makes it known, just finally, just lets it out. They've been holding it in for like 30 years. And you say, mom, your dressing is terrible. It tastes like raw oysters our entire life. Nobody likes it. We just eat it to make yourself happy. And then she just like shuts down and she, she tries to make it through dessert without crying. And like there's all this tension. You ever been there? Anybody? Bueller? My bad. These family table gatherings as great and central to our life as they can be, they can also get awkward quick. That's kind of what our text is this morning. As we turn back to the chapter from Mark that we're gonna be reading, um, our text this morning from Mark offers us a very unique table gathering, all right? So will you go with me to the book of Mark? It is on the screen here behind me, and we're gonna read it together, or you don't have to read it with me, but we read it, and I'm gonna read it. You can let it wash over you. You can listen. You can follow along. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake 
A large crowd came in and began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners, they were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law who were with the Pharisees, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and the tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners." This is a, um, a motley crew Jesus is eating with. We see this table fellowship, this gathering around food that should be similar to some of us because it's, they're enjoying company and fellowship. But this gathering is interrupted by a really awkward scene. Our story begins and picks up with Jesus calling one of the disciples named Levi. Levi in other gospels is also known as Matthew. Levi is a tax collector. Levi is a sinner because to be a tax collector is inherently to be a sinner because the profession itself is sinful. Because here's how a tax collector made money. The government imposed a tax on the people. The tax collector collected those tax, but in order for him to make any money and income, he had to up the price of the tax without you knowing what the actual discrepancy was. And if he liked you, he might make that tax you know, a little bit lower, his take off the top. But like, if you made him mad, he had the authority to raise the tax up to whatever he wanted to be able to make more money. So his entire income and in life was from cheating others. So to say tax collector and sinner in the same sentence is pretty redundant in a way, right? To be a tax collector is to be a sinner, which is why these terms, these, these phrases, these words are often connected to one another in the text. And so... Levi is approached by Jesus. Levi is a tax-collecting sinner, approached by God in human form, and nobody likes Levi. Levi doesn't have many friends. Tax collectors, they don't, they don't get along because Levi himself was Jewish. He was, you know, Levi is the name of the priestly order, the Levites. But the Jews don't want to hang out with Levi because he's taxing them on behalf of the government. The government and the people of Rome, they don't want to hang out with Levi because he's a Jew. So Levi stuck somewhere in the middle with nobody who cares about him. Maybe his other tax collecting friends, they've got a little band. That's maybe who comes over to eat. But, but the only people who care about Levi are people that nobody else cares about too. And Jesus, the savior of the world, the soon to be savior of the world, the, the God in human form goes to this tax collecting center and says, hey, you, follow me. Hey, you, you sinner who nobody else sees anything in, follow me. Hey, you who no one else thinks has any worth, follow me. And so Levi becomes one of Jesus's apostles and they go back to Levi's house to grab some lunch or dinner. It doesn't say, I don't know, lunch or dinner, one of the two. They get to have a meal. But the text says that they're reclining at the table at Levi's house, which means it wasn't just like, hey, let's make a quick sandwich and get on the road. Let's, let's do some, let's grab a quick Taco Bell run through and we'll head on out. I mean, one, they didn't have Taco Bell, which, you know, I hate that for them because they really are missing out. And two, to recline at the table means to relax, to sit, to be present, to take time, to be in fellowship. To recline at the table is like our holiday gatherings, right? You don't rush through that meal. You sit there. You enjoy conversation. That was one thing my parents used to always say to me. I always wanted to go play, and they'd be like, you have to have conversation for 10 minutes. 
And a conversation used to sound like such a terrible thing. And now I'm like, oh yeah, this is nice. This is fellowship. This is life-giving. Jesus was comfortable with this crowd that he was eating with. He was eating with people, though, who others were not so comfortable with. Because Jesus make, Mark makes sure to point out who these people were. The people with whom Jesus is eating are on the lowest rung of the social hierarchy. Jesus is eating with Levi and his tax collectors, and it says tax collectors and sinners. It almost sounds like derogatory, the way Mark describes it, right? Jesus was reclining at the table eating with tax collectors and sinners. As if like, hey, we want to make sure you know these people, not too good. The Pharisees see this. And you know, the Pharisees, they're the religious leaders. They're they're the priests. They're the pastors of the Jewish people. They're the people like me who are there to teach and instruct. And they see Jesus, who they already have beef with. Already at this point in the narrative, Pharisees, Jesus, not BFFs. And so they have issue with this man who is usurping their authority, who's teaching from the law, who, who is doing things that undermine them. And so they ask his disciples, they ask Jesus' disciples, hey, why is the guy you follow, this person who's supposed to know the law, supposed to be a good Jew, why is he eating with tax collectors and sinners? Because if he's such a good moral person, he shouldn't be hanging out with those people. If he's really religious and holy, he won't associate with those who are not. If he is your leader who is supposed to be this person who understands what it means to be close to God, why is he spending time with those who are so not like God? That's what the Pharisees are asking. And they ask it loud enough, like in a passive aggressive way. Have you ever received a comment that you know is aimed for you but said for, to somebody else just loud enough that you would hear it? Like that, that kind of passive aggressive, like somebody, somebody might be talking to Brianna and be like, they and Brianna talking like, yeah, well, you, you know, Woods does this thing when he preaches. I don't really like it very much, but it's close enough where I could hear it so they'd know I'd say that. No one's ever done that. I'm not saying like I hear people going, I'm just saying. But, but that's what's kind of happening. These Pharisees are talking to the disciples loud enough because Jesus hears it. The text says, Jesus heard them say this. They didn't address Jesus. They're talking to the disciples, but Jesus hears it. And he butts in. He interjects. He says, this, this is a great line. He says, on hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And to me, this one line, this one line from Jesus reshapes the whole paradigm of religion. I know that might sound hyperbolic or like too extreme, but but hear me, like to say this one sentence has that big of an impact, but, but the implications of what Jesus just said are enormous. For everyone up to this point, and for a lot of religions today, and for many Christians who misappropriate the gospel message, there's this thought that like, to be close to God, you have to be the holiest. In order for you to know God more, it's only that the holiest people are those who are the closest to God. But Jesus is saying kind of the opposite. He's saying it's not about who you are or what you do or where you were born. It's about what God does. I mean, like, we have a hard time with that today, right? We think, we think, if I could pray like Pastor Robbins, then God will hear my prayers more. Or if I could sing like Christine, then God would hear my songs more. If I could study the Bible like Adam Hamilton, then, then I, God would know that I care more because I'd be smart like, like these people. And I'm not suggesting that these people don't know Jesus, and nor am I saying that these people are Pharisees. But often, our perception is we have to be like somebody else in order for God to care more about us. And it's not that we shouldn't practice these things. We should. We should try to grow closer to God. 
But the connection to the divine is never dependent on what we do, but on what God does. Jesus spends time with those who are not practicing the law. Jesus is God in human form, and he says, I'm not here to affirm those who are well, but those who are in need, who are sick. Those who already are holy obviously don't have a need for me. It's the lost, the forgotten, the outcast, the vulnerable, the broken. Those are the people that I've come for. Jesus didn't seek out the rich. He doesn't try to rub elbows with the nobles so that they could give him the most comfortable life and make things easier for his religious progression. He went to those who had nothing. He went to those who were searching for something more, who were desperate for anything of relief. And that's what I mean about this paradigm shift. We often miss it today because we perceive we have to be somebody else in order for God to care about us. But Jesus came to all of those who were a complete and utter mess. Those who had no hope, those who had no worth. And I think that's why Mark pointed out that there were many who followed him. Now this line, there were many who followed him. There's like a hyphen in the text in my translation, the translation and it didn't said there were many who followed him. And I've often read that in a very different way. Like I've read this text dozens of times but as I was preaching, as I was preparing to preach this text, I kept getting hung up on that line. There were many who followed him. There were many who followed him. There were many who followed him. And I've always assumed that just meant like there were many people who followed him. Because Jesus had lots of disciples. Oftentimes when he preached like the Sermon on the Mount, there was like thousands of people listening. There, there were tons and tons of people who were following Jesus all the time. Hundreds, thousands. But, but what I missed is that Mark is actually pointing out, making sure we realize that he's saying many sinners followed him. Not just many people. He was specifically saying there were many sinners who followed Jesus. And I think Mark is specifically taking time to point that out because he wants us to realize that the people who are lowest members of society, the people who had nothing, those are the people who Jesus can comfort the most. I realize the reason that... Um, those people were following Jesus and the religious authorities did not. It's the same reason why the gospel is flourishing in third world countries. Why Celebrate Recovery is one of the most fruitful ministries. Why churches in the inner city often have the most faithful people committed. It's because Jesus offered something to the sinners that the rest of the people thought they already had or didn't need. Jesus offered them hope and worth and value. And if I can be honest for a second, friends, I would venture to guess that, that very few of us in this room, very few of people in my family, my friends, people I know, can appreciate that in the same way that these sinners and tax collectors can. I'm kind of ashamed to admit this, but, but many of us can't see Jesus for who he truly is and what he truly represents because we find our hope elsewhere. We find our worth elsewhere. We've gained status or success from our work. We've gained wealth and position from our family and social experiences. Many of us have a hard time appreciating this desperation that these sinners had um, because we find value from places other than Christ. 
And so I don't mean to be super damning of all of us in here or to assume that none of us really know Christ, but I think the reason why our church doesn't look as much like our neighborhood is because we don't seem to be a place full of broken people. We seem to be a place full of people who've already got it all together. We've got success, we've got worth, we've got value. And, and when I first came here, it was kind of intimidating, actually. I, I showed up to Dolphin Way, and I was really excited, and, and I've gotten to know and all of you and love all of you. When I first got here, I was like, man, this place, these people got it together. They, you know, they don't even need a pastor. I need to be, you know, I just, y'all just tell me what to do, and, and, and I'll do that. I was like, where are all the broken people? Either they're not here, we're, we're all got it figured out, or we're all really good at hiding it. And the longer I've been here, the more I've realized that we're all really good at hiding our brokenness. We all think we've got it all together. We all think we've got it figured out. And when we look at others, they look like they do too, so we have to pretend like we do. You know, yeah, we're all good. Somebody asks how we're doing, I'm good. Somebody asks, what's going on in your life? Oh, just nothing but blessings, hashtag blessed, hashtag blessed. We're afraid to show our failures. We're afraid to show our struggles. We don't want to be the people who are, you know, differentiated as sinners. Those people sit with Jesus. Jesus came for those. We like to be the people who help others. We like to be the people who say, I'm serving those less fortunate than me. They are in need. I am good. Let me give money so that I can show these people how benevolent I am, so that God will see my goodness, so I can help those who don't have as much. The irony about what Jesus says when he said, I came not for the sick, not for the, not for the well, but the sick, I came not, is he's talking just as much to the Pharisees, because they're sick too. But their sickness is even worse because they don't recognize they're sick, and so they can never try to get help. The worst sickness we can have is to not recognize that we are broken, that you are broken, to not admit it, because we all are. We are all broken people. And I'm not here to tell you you're a bad person or the worst person, but the only perfect person that ever lived was named Jesus, wasn't named Woods, wasn't named any of you. And so if you're showing up every Sunday and like, hey, I'm good, let me help somebody else. I'm, I'm just here so I can, you know, hashtag bless other people. That's, you've missed it. We're not all Pharisees, but we don't always recognize that we are sick too. And so as we think about what it means to be part of the Lord's family and what it means to be gathered around the Lord's table, this, this table right here that we're about to come to, this is the family table. This is the one that's open to all people. This is the table that, that you can bring your brokenness to and say, God, I need healing. At this place, you receive the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that says whatever you're struggling with, whatever pride is in the way of you admitting your faults, you can find grace and redemption and forgiveness here. If you think you're too good, too cool for school, that you got it all figured out, then you're missing something. And we're not being honest with ourselves because Christ came for the, the sick, not the well, but we're all sick. We're all broken. And so come to this table, this family table, 
this the Lord's table and find your healing. Find your hope. Find redemption and forgiveness because it is here for each and every one of us. Will you pray with me? God, we thank you for this table that you've prepared for us. We thank you for the redemption, forgiveness, and grace that you offer. We admit that we have not been obedient to your will. We have mistaken your word. We have not followed your law. We have not followed your grace. We have failed to be an obedient church, not heard the cry of the needy. Forgive us, we pray. Forgive us and free us for joyful obedience to you, Jesus Christ, our Lord, now and forever. Amen. At this time,